0: But um, let me turn now to the most valuable book we can ever read, God's Word. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 9. If you're using one of the church Bibles that you picked up as you came in, that's page 87. We're going to read Leviticus chapter 9, reading from verse 1 through to chapter 10, verse 3. Leviticus chapter 9, reading from verse 1. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old, without blemish, for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord.'" And a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and for the people. And bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them, as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him. And he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering and Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar and they handed the burnt offering to him piece by piece and the head and he burned them on the altar and he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it and burned it on the altar beside the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people And Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the breasts and he burned the fat pieces on the altar. But the breasts and the right thigh, Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, They shouted and fell on their faces. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. This is the word of the Lord. What brought you out this evening?
1: What do you hope for? What do you come for? Sunday morning, Sunday evening, as you gather as Grace Church Laberts. I want to suggest that there ought to be one overriding answer to that question. And the overarching answer, however many other good things go on, the overarching answer ought to be we come to worship Almighty God. Fascinatingly, it seems that we're even wired for worship. There was a program on the BBC a year or so ago. Uh, explaining that, that some scientists, and I'm not a scientist, so if you are, apologies for the communication here, but some scientists have studied the brain, and they'd worked out that the same parts of the brain fire in a Christian when they worship, as in a fan of Apple iPhones when they go to the iPhone store and get a new product fascinating, isn't it? It seems we're built for worship. We're built to find our hopes, our joy, our significance, our very identity in something else, something greater than us. We are built for worship. Uh, this evening, as we look at Leviticus 9 and just touch on Leviticus 10, I want to draw together some of the threads that have begun to weave together over the last 48 hours or so. And I want to start by looking at the big picture, the promise of Old Testament worship, the promise of Old Testament worship. Before we dive down into the details of this particular ceremony, this particular worship service in Leviticus 9, let's lift our eyes a little bit to see this big picture. I hope by now you've got the big picture of Leviticus, or at least the first half of Leviticus. God has built this garden in the wilderness, this tabernacle, in order to provide a a worship site for his people, This, this Garden of Eden, this Mount Sinai. And he's provided ways for his people to come to him, the almighty God who dwells in the heart of the tabernacle. And here, for the first time, it actually happens. That's one of the new things in Leviticus 9. So far, everything we've talked about has just been God explaining to Moses what ought to happen. And here in Leviticus 9, it actually begins. So in verse 23, do you see? Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. The tabernacle, that is. And when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted. They fell on their faces. That is, they, they bowed down and worshipped. For the first time, we've gone live, as it were. The fire falls, and all is well. The people worship. They don't flee. What's changed? What's changed? What's changed is Leviticus 1 through 8. That is, the sacrifices and the priest have come into place. And again, I hope that whatever else you've you've picked up over the last few sessions, you've seen that the only way into God's presence is through a sacrifice and a priest. Ultimately, of course, both being the Lord Jesus Christ. But but why? Why does Christ come as priest and sacrifice? He comes so that we can join the people in verse 24 and fall on our faces, bow down, and worship. Leviticus 9 is another picture of Christ, the true high priest. Uh, it's there in, in some fascinating little details, I think. Do you see how the, the, the passage begins? On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons. Where, where have they been? Well, they've been inside the tabernacle for seven days. Uh, if you look at the end of chapter uh, 8 in verse uh, 33, their ordination service has been going on for seven days. That The stuff we looked at this morning has been going on and on for seven days. If you like, Aaron, the high priest, has been hidden in the tabernacle. Remember the the ordinary people, you you and me, we we can't go in. He's been in there, hidden for seven days, and on the eighth day, he reappears. Now, what's the eighth day of the week? children? what's the eighth day of the week? Why are you asking me silly questions? There are seven days in the week. That's right. There are. The eighth day of the week, therefore, is the first day of the new week. So what do we have? We have the great high priest, the leader of Israel's worship, beginning the worship of God's people. This is the first time they've ever gathered as God's people to, to worship in the tabernacle. He begins by emerging on the first day of the week. Does that ring any bells? That's stunning? The Lord Jesus, out of sight, crucified, died, was buried. But on the first day of the week, he rises from the grave, and why? To forgive our sins, yes. To reconcile us to God, yes. But ultimately, so that he might lead his people in worship. The great, the great psalm of the cross, Psalm 22, that Jesus quotes My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we rightly think of it as a psalm that, that gives us at least a glimpse into the agony, the dereliction. Of Christ crucified but but it doesn't end in dereliction it doesn't end in despair does it as the psalm goes on it, it it moves from tragedy to triumph and Christ rises from the grave and eventually psalm 22 verse 22 so it's easy to remember Christ says this I will tell of your name your name O God your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation I will praise you Christ has risen from the grave to lead his brothers and sisters in praise You're good Presbyterians, you know this. What is the chief end of man? It's to evangelize the nations. Well, no, not quite. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is your destiny. This is where the whole Bible is going. This is where the story of creation is going. When well, we get a glimpse into heaven in the book of Revelation, what are the angelic creatures doing? What are those who've died and gone before us doing? They are Bowing down in worship and singing God's praise. So, so when we gather as the temple of the Holy Spirit, Sunday by Sunday, the first day of the week, we're doing what we're destined to do. It's a little starter, a little foretaste of what's to come, of what you've been made for. This is why worship is so significant. So many good things to do in the Christian life. It's great to read your Bible. It's great to be in a a midweek small group or a youth group if you're you're a youngster, children going to Sunday school. But this is what you're built for. You're not going against the grain when you come and worship. You're coming to do what you were created for. Over the summer, I read a few books on worship, just trying to think a little bit more before we we began this series in Leviticus. And an American uh, theologian, actually, Told the story of having a sabbatical, a break, and going around lots and lots of churches, lots and lots of Bible-believing churches, just to experience the range. And his comment was that at the end of, of, of almost, I think, fifty churches that he visited, that the overwhelming feel was what he called edutainment. That's a made-up word. Children, don't you know? Don't write that in school essays. Or uh, tomorrow, edutainment, i.e., education or entertainment. That was the feel. Of the services, as Presbyterians, we're good at slamming those who seek entertainment. We know it's not about lights and smokes and flashbangs. Maybe the education is more likely to grab us because it's close to the truth, isn't it? We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. But if we're careful, If we're not careful, sorry, if we're not careful, then Sunday simply becomes the time that I come to have my brain stimulated. It's the kind of educated version of entertainment. The the uni-graduate version of entertainment. I like learning new things. I like learning what the story of David and Goliath means. What the problem was in Colossae and the book of Colossians. I like knowing what exactly has gone wrong in Galatia or the main theme of 2 Peter. And of course those are good things to know, good things to learn. But they're not the end goal the end goal of all learning is worship. So as you leave on Sunday morning or Sunday evening, the question to ask yourself is not did I enjoy that? It's not even quite did I learn something new? It's no version of what did I get out of that? Your first question All of our first question ought to be, did I honor almighty God in my worship? Churches so often fright and fracture over Sunday worship. And it's because we all have our agendas. I want the songs that I like. I want the kind of preaching that I like. I like a preacher who tells more stories, does more jokes, tells fewer jokes, tells fewer stories. Our duty is to come and worship, give glory to God. Leviticus 9, and the promise of even greater worship. But it also gives us, I think, a pattern. We see in Leviticus 9 the pattern of Old Covenant worship. There is a structure to this first worship service. And let's look at it. We're going to go relatively quickly through it. And hopefully some of the sacrifices will begin to just stimulate your memory. It begins with a call On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron. Remember, Moses is a walking, talking Bible. He's a prophet. He speaks for God. Moses calls Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel together. And eventually, all the congregation, in verse 5, draw together with them. And then in verses 7 through 14, there are a series of sacrifices for the priests. And in 15 through 21 the same series of sacrifices for the people. So we're just going to look at the people because they're basically parallel. Look at the order of these sacrifices because the way they're taught in Leviticus is not the order they're performed. Okay, the, the way we've looked at them by doing Leviticus 1, then 2, then 3 is not the order they're performed exactly. They begin, verse 15, with the people's offering of the sin offering. I'm afraid this is one of the ones we didn't look at. This is chapter four, okay? The purification offering in some versions, the sin offering. I called it this morning the D, detergent offering. Do you remember? The ascension offering, the bring a gift offering, the come and eat in peace offering, and then D, the detergent offering. This is your classic cleansing the people offering, dealing with your sin, purifying you. And then in verse 16 comes the ascension offering, the burnt offering, the one that, transforms you and brings you symbolically into God's presence that ascension offering of chapter one where the whole thing was burnt up turned into smoke transformed so the animal ascended symbolically in the smoke into the the incense in the holy place and ultimately into the most holy place of God's presence the offering that brings you into God's presence and transforms you to make you fit for him And then, verse 17, comes the grain offering. That's the bring a gift offering. I've been cleansed. I've come into God's house. What do you do when you come into someone's house, especially the king's house? Well, you bring a gift. And so there goes the grain offering. And then, verse 18, next, is that come and eat in peace offering. The one that the people eat. Finally, verse 22, it all ends with Aaron lifting his hands towards the people and blessing them. That is the the benediction. He'd be saying, you know, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Those words, that blessing has been spoken over God's people. Aaron with his hands aloft for three and a half thousand years now. Do you recognize that pattern? That that basic pattern has shaped worship services ever since. In essence, your worship service here in Larbat is is 3,500 years old. Do you recognize it? It begins when God calls us to worship. This evening, we, we, we began with words from Scripture. God calls his people to come before him. He initiates it. Because it echoes the gospel. Worship is to echo the gospel. It renews us in the gospel time after time. And the gospel begins not with us searching and finding God, but with God's word coming and finding us. It begins with a call. What's the next thing that that happens? And fascinating, this happens, by the way, if you look at the structure of worship services across so many denominations and down the centuries, fascinatingly, so often this same pattern occurs that you move from the call to confession, to dealing with our sin, that sin offering, the one that cleanses us. What do we do this morning? And we did it this evening as well. We repented of our sin to God, claim that forgiveness of Christ again. The next offering was the ascension one, the one that, that transforms us, sanctifies us, makes us fit for God's presence. I think we see that in the work of the word in particular, in the service, the preaching of the word that sanctifies us, that, that cuts us. Remember that the, the word is the sword of the spirit. The animal went under the, the sword. The word, the sword of the spirit that, that chops us up and shapes us, consecrates us for God's presence. The word that transforms us. Then it was the come and eat in peace offering. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it is after the word, isn't it? It's at the end of the service. Have you ever turned up? Now, I've not asked this, but, but I am willing to bet you have never turned up to a service at Grace Church Larbert, and the first thing you've done is had communion. Is that just because it sort of feels weird to do it? No. There's an order to the gospel, an order to worship. We've been called. We've been... Cleansed, we've renewed ourselves in the blood of Christ. We've been consecrated, made holy slowly by his word as it's preached to us. And therefore, we celebrate the peace that God has pronounced over us in communion. And finish again with a benediction, verse 22. A benediction, by the way, is not, it's not a prayer. A benediction is a blessing. A prayer is us speaking to God Lord, we pray that you would, dot, 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 or. But a benediction is God, through Aaron, or through the minister, or the elder, or whoever's leading, pronouncing a blessing on the people. Okay. If you like, it's a little preaching of the gospel. It's not man speaking to God, but God speaking to man. Now, I'm not saying that Leviticus 9 gives us an exact binding pattern that must be followed in every church service. Face of the earth throughout all the centuries, without exception, forever and ever, Amen. I do. I don't think we can say that. But it is fascinating that that pattern—call, confession, consecration, communion, and benediction. There's a C in the middle—is there and has been in worship services down the centuries. Essentially, your worship tells a story. Another of the IPC ministers often goes around telling us that structures tell stories. The structure, the liturgy, as you might call it, of the service tells its own story. The story of the gospel. It's the pattern of Old Covenant worship. And thirdly and finally, in Leviticus 10, we see the peril of worship. We've had the promise of worship, we've got the pattern, but here the peril of worship. Uh, we meet Nadab and Abihu. We've met them a couple of times already. They're Moses' nephews, Aaron's sons, sons of the high priest. So these are important guys. They're priests themselves. They've been ordained. They're part of the leadership of God's people. And They were allowed halfway up the mountain at Sinai, where the elders ascended. But, but here, they get it badly wrong. What do they do? Well, they, they take their censer, their... A swinging kind of fiery pot. They put incense in it and they offer unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he'd not commanded. Now, now, Nadab and Abihu here are are attempting to to lead worship, attempting to worship God. These sacrifices, I don't think I've said this over the weekend, but these sacrifices are not simply about getting saved. The way the book of Hebrews deals with Leviticus is it takes the sacrifices of the priest and says, look, these all point to Christ, the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. And so we've done that lots. But but clearly, if you think about these sacrifices, it it wasn't the case that every time, say, Moses bought one of these sin offerings, he was getting saved. It's not as if Moses sinned, so he bought a sin offering, and then thought, right, phew, I'm okay, I'm going to heaven. And then walked out of the tabernacle, tripped over, swore, thought, oh no, I'm not saved anymore. I need to run back in and offer another sin offering. Okay? These offerings weren't move, moving faithful, believing Israelites from a status of saved and then unsaved when they sin, and then saved when they sin, and then unsaved. They're more akin, they're more akin to, to the book of 1 John, where John writes to, to God's people and says, you know, if, if we claim we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not when we confess our sins on a Sunday that we're becoming Christians again. You know, if you, if you go outside and you get hit by a bus and you haven't confessed your latest sins, you're still going to heaven, aren't you? All to say that these sacrifices are part of Worship. Part of the ongoing relationship, not simply the beginning of the relationship between God and his people. So, Nadab and Abihu here are coming to worship God, but they do so in an unauthorized way. They are not trying to lead God's people to worship a different God. They are not saying, let's worship Dagon or Baal. They want to worship the true God, but they're not doing so according to his word. All the way through chapter 8 and 9, you might look at the end of many of the paragraphs and you'll see that everything is done as the Lord commanded Moses. So in chapter 8, it's there in verse 13. It's there in verse 17. It's there in verse 21. The end of almost every paragraph in this great build-up is as the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Nadab and Abihu get up and do something that is not commanded. Verse 1. It is not according to God's word. Now, we don't really know what it was they did wrong. People have suggested that they took fire from the wrong altar or, or kind of cooked up their own incense or were drunk when they did it. Or, there's all sorts of explanations. And honestly, I'm not sure we can be clear from Leviticus 10 what exactly they did wrong. But what we can be clear is that they did not act in according to God's word. They had been, if you like, on a creative worship seminar. They'd heard everything that God had said in Leviticus 1 through 8. They'd seen true worship begin in in, in chapter 9. And they thought, well, let's spice it up a little bit. That's one great way of doing it. But how about this? They weren't leading people into idolatry to another God, but they were inventing their own way of worship. And what does it end with? It ends with their death. Fire comes out, just as it had done before, but this time fire comes out not to consume the sacrifices, to say, yeah, as if God is saying, yes, I accept these sacrifices, as it did in chapter 9, but it consumes them and they die, verse 2, before the Lord. God cares how he's worshipped, not just that he's worshipped. I think this is a great shock to, to many of us, even in the evangelical church. It was a huge shock to me years into my Christian life. God cares how we worship, not just who we worship. We've seen it earlier in, in the book of Exodus. You remember the incident with the golden calf we, we spoke about this morning? where Aaron leads the people to worship this golden calf as as Moses is up at the mountain. But but who does he say the golden calf is? He doesn't invent a God. He says, this is Yahweh who led you out of Egypt. They're worshipping Yahweh, the Lord, but via the medium of the golden calf. Aaron leads them then, and Nadab and Abihu, here I think, to break the second rather than the first commandment. The first commandment, no other gods before me. The second commandment, make no images of anything. In heaven above or earth below or the seas and on it goes. And that's not simply saying don't make an image of a frog god or a rat god and worship it. Make no image of anything in heaven. Who's in heaven? God. I care not just that you worship me but how you worship me. The Lord is saying. God's word is to shape our worship. And what that means, and this has been a, I think, a particular strength of, of what you might call the, the reformed strand of the church throughout history, is we only do in worship, this gathered formal sense of worship, we only do what God commands us to do. That is, when when your elders, ministers, sit down to, to put the service together, they can only build with certain bricks, the bricks that God has given, commanded in his word. Now, those bricks are obviously not the same bricks as were given in Leviticus 9. Okay? You have to go to the New Testament to see what is commanded in worship. And I think you see a, a, a few, a very few things. We're told to read the Bible. Timothy is taught, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. It's not just him on his own. This is clearly the public, the corporate reading of Scripture. Timothy is told to preach the word in season and out. So we're to read the Bible, preach the Bible. Uh, We're told to sing to one another. Colossians, Ephesians, sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And again, that's clearly a corporate gathering as it is to one another. But passages like 1 Corinthians 14, Acts 2, the church gather and they pray. Similarly, they celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we thought about yesterday evening. And I think we could add in, too, that in Acts 2, that they, they bring their offerings. But honestly, that's about it. One writer has summarized it this way. We're to read the Bible, preach the Bible, sing the Bible, pray the Bible, see the Bible. Giving isn't in there. I'd want to add that in at the end. But I think that's about it. It's what's been called the, the regulative principle of worship. It's not that we're allowed to do anything we like as long as God hasn't banned it. It's that we only do when we gather together what God has commanded us to do. That is why... Again, I assume (laughs) you don't have drama on a Sunday. There's never been a blank canvas at the front and you've been invited to come forward and, and paint what you're feeling during the service. It's not because art is wrong or drama is wrong. It's not even that those things are wrong to do for God, to glorify God in other contexts, but just not in the Sunday worship service. We are to worship with reverence and awe. We do so to to honor God. You see in Leviticus 10 verse 3, why has this happened? Why are these people, Nadab and Abihu, killed? The Lord says, among those who are near me, who draw near to me, as we do to God on a Sunday, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. We worship as God tells us to in order to honor him. And just in case we think this is all about bit Old Testament, think of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, where the Corinthians are messing around with the Lord's Supper in various ways. You look at it another time. Paul writes to them and says, because of this, some of you are ill, and some of you have died. Because of how they're dealing with the Lord's Supper. Now I know and you know that God... That God does not send fire every time we worship wrongly. He's gracious, but that doesn't allow us to deliberately worship wrongly. We do so to honor him, we do so to receive his blessing. That Leviticus 9 and 10 are in parallel although 10 verses 1 to 3 is much shorter. Leviticus 9 ends with Aaron blessing the people. Leviticus 10, the little false worship service, ends, 10 verse 3, with what? Aaron holding his peace. He is silent. One of the reasons that we, we preach the word, administer the sacraments, pray, and build the worship service with these particular blocks. Uh, the, after The fact that it honors the Lord, which is the most important, is that that's how we receive His blessing. The Lord has said He will bless His church through these means. So it would be foolishness to to try and sort of find other ways. If you've been away for a month with work and you get a message from your wife saying, I'll I'll meet you at at lounge three of the airport when you return, where are you going to go? You're going to go to lounge three. You're not going to think, well, it's possible, I guess, that she might also be in lounge too, to meet me. Theoretically, it is possible, isn't it? But no, you go to where she has told you she'll meet you, to bless you with her presence again. It's possible God can bless us in all sorts of ways. Of course it is, and he does. But we go to the places that he tells us. The means of grace, as they're called. Thirdly and finally, this is freeing. I hate for this to sound really negative at the end of the weekend, but this is freeing. It means that, that again, your ministers, your elders, can't bind you to do stuff that God hasn't told you to do. I'm sure we've all been at, maybe it's festivals or conventions or conferences or other churches where we've just cringed being asked to do certain things. A friend who, many miles away from here, a friend who took his non-Christian friend along to church, and that, that Sunday without announcement, the church minister decided that instead of having a normal service, the preaching of the word, and all the rest of it, they'd divide the room into different prayer spaces, prayer zones. You walk through and did expressive prayer or writing prayers. Or my friend was just mortified. It's... Not that it's wrong to pray. But the minister essentially was forcing him to do all sorts of weird and wonderful things that the Lord himself had not commanded. Worship matters. It mattered to the reformers. We think the Reformation as being just about the recovery of the gospel. Fascinatingly, Calvin, when he wrote to the emperor, Charles V, said there are two big issues we've got to sort out. Two reasons why I'm not happy with the Roman Catholic Church. The second issue is the gospel, the message of how we're saved. The first is worship. And he he himself wrote and said, I know how difficult it is to persuade the world that God disapproves of all modes of worship, not expressly sanctioned by his word. But let's finish, not by thinking about what we can't do, but what we can do. We're meant to be freed from all these weird and wonderful practices, bowing to images, kissing pictures. Being forced to dance, paint, all these sort of things that are wonderful, potentially on your own time. But we're freed so that we might come and join our Lord in worship. He rose from the grave to lead us in worship. This is the purpose of his rescue. Leviticus is the purpose of Exodus. Exodus. The whole point of Exodus is to get you to Leviticus, rescue you from slavery so that you can worship. We might say the book of Revelation is the point of the book of Romans. Romans is all about the gospel, how God has rescued us so that we might worship. It is your greatest duty, but it is also your greatest delight. That question again what is the chief end of man? What's the, the, the main aim, the main goal of man, the main purpose of man, mankind? And there are two answers, aren't there? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. D- did the writers of that catechism get it wrong? Should they have said, what are the, what's the chief ends, plural? No. Because to glorify God, to worship and enjoy him, are one thing. It's not that we worship him, and separately we enjoy him. We enjoy him by worshiping him, and we worship by enjoying him. So come Sunday by Sunday, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. Be refreshed in the gospel as it's preached to you, as it's modeled in the service. And give to your God immortal praise. And as you do so, you'll be being led not by Andrew or Hamish or Charles or Sean, but by the Lord Jesus. He is here among us, leading his brothers and sisters in worship. We are gathered on that great mountain with innumerable angels, with all those who've gone before us. And so we worship by faith, not by sight. But we worship in the presence and in the power of the King of Kings, our Savior, the great high priest. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you've set us free. Set us free to worship and serve you. We praise you that you've opened our eyes to see the glory of Christ. We praise you that you've broken the shackles of sin to set us free to serve him. We praise you that you've unstopped our ears so we might hear him speak to us and we might be renewed in his image. We praise you that he is our prophet, our priest and our King, that He is our worship leader, that He has done everything needed to bring us into Your presence. And so allow us, Father, we pray, allow us the privilege of worshipping You, our great God, with heart and soul and mind and strength. Loosen our tongues, we pray, that our worship might not be simply with our lips, but from the depths of our hearts. And Father, open the eyes of our hearts by faith that we might see the Lord Jesus as he leads and gathers and rejoices with his people. In his name we pray, amen.